Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Uh, We are... We are doing our podcast for the third Sunday of Lent, and our gospel reading is Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. So this is actually going earlier than last week's was in, in, the, in the scripture. Um, so uh, but Alan's going to put that into context for us, and I think, um, I think he's got some background for us that kind of even precedes that. So go yeah. ahead. Well, and, you know, once again, our, pa- our gospel passage probably sounds strange to most of our listeners. Um, the warning, unless you repent, you will all perish, repeated twice, reminds us more of John the Baptist than we normally understand as Jesus' message. And I, I want to offer a clarification here on something we discussed earlier in connection with John the Baptist. Um, in that episode, I mentioned the idea that John's view of the kingdom of God was very different from Jesus' view. And I would say that's not really consistent with the perspective offered in Luke's gospel. Uh, In connection with preparing for our podcast today, I discovered that repentance is actually one of the major emphases in Luke and Acts. Um, In connection with criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes for associating with sinners, Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners for repentance. And that serves as Mm -hmm. almost a kind of mission statement for him as well. Uh, A closer look reveals that repentance was not just the message of John, but also of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, In connection with the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Mm -hmm. And the implication, I think, is fairly obvious that, yeah, even those righteous persons need repentance Mm -hmm. as well. And finally, the Lucan version of the Great Commission in Luke 24, 46 and 47 is, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And as if on cue, then the theme of repentance is an integral part of the gospel proclaimed in the book mm-hmm. of Acts. Um, in, uh, you know, in, one, in one place in Acts eleven eighteen, 18, after uh, Peter goes to visit Cornelius. Uh, the folks in Jerusalem who had been complaining are finally convinced, well, God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads wow. to life. That, the, that, that mm-hmm. phrase there, the repentance mm-hmm. that leads to life, I think is significant. This is really interesting, Ellen, because I'm not sure that most of our listeners are coming thinking about Luke in terms of repentance. I, I mean, think I think so. they're thinking about Luke in terms of justice. And even um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that myself. Yeah. So I was, I was. It, this was something that I discovered just this week in preparation for the podcast. Yeah. So I wonder. You know, I wonder. I may be pushing too far, but I wonder. You know, I think of Luke, and I think a lot about justice, and I, I think a lot about uh, if there's this, if there's a. If there's some kind of parallel between repentance and justice. I see it more as, I mean, I would say in one sense, yes, but I see it more as reflecting, you know, I, again, we've talked about how Luke is so in tune with the Hebrew Bible and the message of the Hebrew Bible. Mm, and the message true. of the prophets was consistently right. one of calling the people to repent right. and to return to, to being faithful to God. And right. I, I, I see it as more reflecting that kind of um, uh, sure. um, of, of um, message from the Hebrew Bible, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So go ahead and, and tell us. You have some more to, to share about the background. Yeah, and, and so one of the things I took issue with with John's preaching was that the was the apocalyptic tone of his warning that even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree, mm-hmm. therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I would still see John's statement as reflecting apocalyptic sentiments, but I would say that in light of the prominence of repentance Mm -hmm. as a theme in Luke and Acts, I would now say that Luke portrays John and Jesus as being more in agreement, Mm -hmm. especially about the need for repentance. The good news in Luke and Acts is that God offers not only the people of Israel, but also the Gentiles as well, the opportunity to repent. Mm -hmm. That is the good news. Right. And this is not only a part and part of the gospel, but it's also an important part of how Luke frames the Christian faith in Acts. I think we've talked mm-hmm, before about mm-hmm. how conversion in Acts involves repentance, faith in Jesus, reception, baptism, right. and reception right. of the Holy Spirit. That's all one sort one. of con- uh, constellation of themes. Yeah, and that, so, this is very interesting because we're, we're heightening this, this significance of repentance um, in Luke's gospel that Absolutely. I don't think many of us probably are, are have, have thought about that much even i you know i i, I would say I've, I've been studying luke seriously you know for a long time even i have missed that up until now uh, but that's that's why we keep going back yes indeed. You, you know um but i think the other thing that i found interesting here and i know we'll talk about it more in a little bit but in this in this pericope this this discussion or this example of the the galileans the the gentiles Mm -hmm. in it and so this is an this is again part of luke's theme and it's brought in here and so i know you have that planned for a little later but i kind of wanted to draw that out too this repentance that he's going to make not only for the jews but also the gentiles is going to come fully in this scripture as well yeah galileans were seen as kind of half Gentiles, you know, inheritors of the Samaritan mm-hmm. region. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pulling that out. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, moving on, more background information, I think. Yeah. And so then another part of the background, I think, is to look at uh, the context of this passage in Luke's gospel. And, uh, you know, as we have seen before, Luke ties this passage with the preceding context. He says in Luke 13:1, at that very time. And so that points us back to chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And, and what goes before really is a dialogue that focuses on the importance of watchfulness in light of the fact that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour, as Jesus says in Luke 12, 40. Mm-hmm. And so there are two aspects, I think, to this statement that we need to recognize. The certainty that the Son of Man is coming and the uncertainty of the timing of his coming. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the focal point then around which the dialogues about persecution in Luke Mm -hmm. Luke 12, 4 through 12, wealth, uh, livelihood, status, and family relationships, that's basically the content of Luke chapter 12. All of these dialogues are oriented around this focal point that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected Mm -hmm. hour. And so then the eschatological crisis of the Son of Man's coming is similar to the crisis regarding the day of the Lord and the prophets. And again, here I think we have a connection with the Hebrew Bible Mm -hmm. prophets. Mm -hmm. As a result then... In this chapter, and you know, we've said before in in the in the narrative of Luke's um, journey to Jerusalem, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, um, it's sort of an extended dialogue on what is the nature of discipleship. And here, then, discipleship is determined is defined in terms of repentance from the way the nations of the world approach these various aspects of life: persecution, wealth, mm-hmm. livelihood, status, family relationships. 
and instead striving for God's kingdom. Now, it's interesting that the word, the word is the same word in the Greek text. It's zeteo, seek. But in Matthew, it says seek first. Mm. In, in, in Luke, it just says seek the king, seek his kingdom. And, and I think that's why a lot of translators have tried to enhance sort of the translation uh, because it doesn't have the first from mm. Matthew. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the New RSV says strive for the kingdom. There are other translations in the English Bible mm. uh, tradition that sort of enhance that idea of uh, try, to, try to reflect that similar idea, seek first the kingdom of God mm-hmm. or strive for the mm-hmm. kingdom. Yeah. yeah, well, and of course, again, when you're talking about you don't know when, when God, when when Jesus is coming back, right. I think there's a sense then of of, of the readiness that comes then with the, the seeking, yeah. right? Well, and and I think part of the part of the situation is that not only does the fact that the Son of Man is coming as at an unexpected hour constitute a crisis, I think also in in, in and, and we have to think about the 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 situation in life of Luke's community and the situation in life of Jesus hearers. Mm-hmm. You know, for Jesus hearers, the presence of the kingdom has already brought that crisis. Right. It, it made it very real for them. And so already in the, in the situation right. of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God has, has created this crisis. Right. And the only response to that, re- that crisis, the only appropriate response is to repent. Right, right. So um, the, next, the next thing is uh, Jesus' warnings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that, it's, it's in this setting then of, of this eschatological crisis mm-hmm. posed by the coming of the Son of Man and also by Jesus bringing into the kingdom that, um, uh, that we're to read the initial statement. Um, and, and, you know, again, we're reminded that in, in chapter 12, in that context of crisis, Jesus was very urgent about the need to remain faithful and watchful. And so that's the, that's the context for the statement mm-hmm. then, that there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices mm-hmm. in verse 1. And, you know, at the outset, we should just note that um, this episode is only found in Luke's gospel, not only in the whole gospel tradition, but there is no other mention of these events in any ancient document. Uh, it's not found in Josephus. It's not found in Philo. It's not found any, in any of the canonical or extra-canonical Gospels anywhere. And in fact, the whole dialogue in Luke 13, 1 through 5 is found only in Luke. That is so fascinating Isn't because, it? I mean, Luke tells us this. Uh, who knows where he, Luke's source is? Maybe this right. is just part of, uh, part of something everybody knows, a story people know. But what a fascinating what a fascinating story this is. Well, and, and more than one, I think, commentator would attribute this to Luke's unique source. You know? Yes, and, and that would make sense as well. Yeah. Well, and, and it certainly makes sense with Pilate's um, person, oh, if you will. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, you know, the fact that Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices might suggest that these Galileans were pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Passover mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because that would be the only sort of uh, sacrifice in which an individual would take place, would take part. Otherwise, the priest do all the sacrificing. But in the, in the Passover, you know, you, you, have, you have some role in, 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 in the, the goat that is, that is used mm-hmm. for the Passover meal. Okay. 
And the fact that Pilate intervened may suggest that they were suspected of some kind of politically subversive activity, but we really can't know the cause for this mm-hmm. action. You know, what we do know is that this fits a pattern that we see that we see elsewhere that Pilate could be cruel and brutal when it served his purpose. Right. So, right. Um, other than that, we really don't know much about this episode. Right. I, I, I do find it, you know, as I, I had pointed out, these Galileans were kind of a separate, separatist kind of group. They were obviously identified by Pilate as being particularly subversive, maybe in some well, way. Well, and we should note, uh, you know, that, that uh, Josephus, um, I mean, the, the, the Jewish war uh, right. begins in Galilee. Mm-hmm. And um, there, are, there have been some in previous times who have associated Galileans with revolutionaries. Um, I don't know that we can make that um, association absolutely, but I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in Josephus' mind, you know, Galilee was kind of a hotbed of of, of re- revolution right. you know, against, uh, you know, uprising against the Romans. Yeah. All right. So, m- moving on, then, um, um, tell us more. So it's not made explicit here, but I think the only way to make sense out of this passage is to, is to assume that those who told this to Jesus when they came and said, you know, something about the, the, the Galileans whose blood that, that Pilate mixed with their sacrifices, I think the only way to make sense out of this is that those who told Jesus about this assumed that these Galileans had not been adequately faithful, mm-hmm. and therefore this tragic fate right. came upon, had come upon them. You know, it's no secret that there are many places in the Hebrew Bible where misfortune is seen as the result of a lapse in one's life. Mm -hmm. And so apparently those who brought this to Jesus' attention were thinking this was an event that bore out the truth of what he'd been teaching. And so to some extent, I think what they're doing is, you know, they're they're sort of like trying to say, yeah, right, right, like those Galileans, that's what happened to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then, so of course, how does Jesus respond? Yeah, and you know, I think also the assumption that these folks were 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 pointing out these sinful Galileans and sort of implicitly saying, "Yeah, we're on your side, Jesus. We're we're with you on this watchful mm-hmm. thing and this faithfulness thing." I think the only way that that don't that's the only way to make sense out of the harsh tone of Jesus' response. Mm-hmm. Do not think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans. Mm-hmm. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they right, did. Right. That that you know, that that last part just really I think is shocking to us in terms of trying to make sense how Je- of how Jesus would say something like that. Right. You know, and maybe this is a discussion for later, but, but repent. I think repent is a word for us that, that has a sense of, of harshness about mm-hmm. it. And I think it people don't really know what that means. And right. so maybe that's something we need to explore later. But yeah. I, I have to be honest, when I come to the passage, this sounds very harsh. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned that before. Um, this initial response, my initial response to reading actually the entire piece was this is kind of a harsh sounding passage now after study i took i had a very different take on it i'm thinking if this is actually a really great um passage for mm-hmm. god's patience and forgiveness but initially it this does harshness, strike you as harshening harsh. and i'm wondering is we're talking about it and examining it today how many pastors just skip over it yeah and, and choose something else i i you know it this is one of those passages that i would not necessarily be eager to preach on because of that yeah mm-hmm. it just sounds so harsh now yeah. i would say you know we talked about luke chapter 12 and the themes that jesus addressed there but you might say that really G, the whole travel narrative 
to Jerusalem where Jesus is addressing discipleship and what that means mm-hmm. and what that looks like, that is the definition of repentance. And essentially right. it, is, it is realigning your life from the patterns that are common, you know, mm-hmm. in this world to the patterns that are, that are basically defined by the kingdom of God. I almost wish the word was realign yourself. Yeah. And just because I think repent feels, and I, I don't know why that is. I, I don't. Uh, I think it has to do with our American religious heritage. I think and the it way does. The word has been used. Right, yeah. right. So anyway. Um, it's been used as a kind of judgmental word. It has, it has, yeah. it has. Yeah. So I like realign, realign mm-hmm. yourselves. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so continue on. So, um, you know, one of the things that we need to note here is that Jesus, I think, very clearly undercuts the connection between sin and suffering that was so widely assumed. Mm-hmm. Do not think, you know, you know, basically, do you think that these Galileans suffered in this way because they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, <laughs> uh, that's not the case. Uh, and so the, the point that I think that's the implicit point of his of his uh, statement there that that he undercuts that connection, um, and I, I think again, you know, it's, it's it seems to me likely that those who mentioned this brought it up as a way to identify themselves as we're with you, Jesus, about this faithfulness thing, and to set themselves apart from sinners like the unfortunate Galileans. But Jesus will not allow this. I think we should see that mm-hmm. Jesus will not allow them to, to think of themselves as somehow. Exempt from the right. need to repent, right, right, right. But rather, he warns that the only re- proper response to the kingdom of God is repentance, and that it is necessary for everyone. Mm-hmm. No one is exempt right. from that right. requirement, and and that's because of the nature of the kingdom of God. Exactly, exactly. And um, I'm thinking of 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 people that are reading the gospel or are. I mean, is Jesus responding? <laughs> To a misinterpretation of who he is, I guess. I don't. I don't know that I would say that. I. I. I just think you know. I mean, this is a human tendency. A natural human tendency mm-hmm. is when we we hear something like this, we want to we want to assume, yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm on. I'm on the side of of those who are doing good, mm-hmm. and we want to think we want to think that we're we're not on the outside. We're not on the side of those who have fallen short. And we, that's, we just tend to read, you know, I think we tend to do that, you know, anyway, we, we identify ourselves with the good guys and we, 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 we don't see ourselves right. as, as right. identified with the bad mm-hmm. guys. So it's kind of, I think it's just a natural human and, tendency. Oh, okay. That yeah. sounds fair. So it, it really speaks to all humanity. Yes. Really. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so moving on. Yeah. So then, really, I think this statement underlines, as I said before, the seriousness of the crisis that the kingdom of God was bringing into human affairs and and, and posed for everyone who heard about the mm-hmm. kingdom. You know, so, so, you know, in chapter 12, again, looking back to chapter 12 is sort of setting some of the context for this. Um, not only did Jesus say that in bringing the kingdom of God, he was bringing fire and division into the world, that's Luke 12:49 and Luke 12:51 but he was also saying that in view of the fact that the son of man is coming at an unexpected hour you must be ready mm-hmm. and the word there is hetoimos prepared mm-hmm. you must be prepared and and again so how does one prepare how does one right. be ready for the unexpected coming of the of the son of man well it's uh unless 
by repenting. Basically, right. that's right. where the warning, right. unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. It, it's really intended to press home the urgency and the absolute necessity of repentance for everyone. And again, I think I think this operates both on the level of the situation of life of Jesus' ministry, that, that look, the kingdom of God is here, and this is mm-hmm. an urgent thing. You must, re- you must respond. You know, don't delay. But also, I think, for the situation in life of Luke's congregation, in that, you know, they were they were already in this space of waiting for the Son of Man right. to come at an unexpected time, right. and so um, you know they they kind of had both the crisis of the kingdom and the the potential crisis of the coming of the Son of Man as something that was that was calling forth repentance on their part. Yeah, yeah. I keep I keep thinking, I keep thinking in terms of this, this idea of alignment that that is processing through my mm-hmm. head, and really how often do we either put off our, our faith, um, or, you know, I'll do that later. I can take care of that later. I can, I can forgive somebody later. I can, and, and it's really a call into, I think you mentioned already the, the core of humanity of how humanity needs to real realign itself and humanity needs to repent. Everybody needs to repent. So I'm really liking this. Okay. So moving on, um, there's another example that comes. Yeah, up. so Jesus then reinforces the point. So you know the the initial the initial uh, example is brought up to him by these uh, whoever these people were who were with Jesus and who who brought this to his attention. But Jesus reinforces the point with another example. He says, "Are those eighteen who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish mm-hmm. as they did. And again." Um, this is the only reference to this event in ancient mm-hmm. literature. You know, there, there is no other reference to an event of the Tower of Siloam falling and killing people in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here it's interesting to note that instead of the term sinner, as he used earlier, do you think that these Galileans suffered in this way? They were worse sinners than all of the mm-hmm. Galileans. And that's the that's the adjective hamartalos, which mm-hmm. is... That's the typical word for sinner in the New Testament. Jesus uses the term offender, ophiletes, uh, and um, it, it's, it comes from this idea of debts and debtors, which mm-hmm. is actually, um, Jesus uses a similar pair of words in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and it's mm-hmm. hamartia and ophilo, it's a participle um, it's a it's a substantive participle of the verb ophilo, which means to owe mm-hmm. or to be indebted to someone. So then, you know, at the end of this, the repetition of the warning, unless you repent, you will all perish, just as they did, only serves to reinforce the, this idea of the urgency of the demand for repentance. Mm. Yeah, and, and very interesting. So it's a, it's 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 a it's parallel, but yet it's slightly different, and it brings yeah. it. When I read it, it conjures up a different kind of image. So. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because but I think both of these, both of you know, both of these encounters, you know, the one where the those who who come to him and tell him about the Galileans, and then he brings a, another example, you know, he responds. But but in both of these, again, I think what's going on is 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 that in the background of everything that Jesus is doing is this crisis of the kingdom. Yes, and and the call to repentance by re- realigning your life with. The, the, right. the, per, the, the values of the kingdom, the ways of God, God's purposes, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, just simply conventional human uh, standards. I agree. I agree. I, and I like, I like, but I like the, the two examples because I can see, you know, 
the reader thinking, oh, well, I don't really align with that that situation. They must have done something wrong to deserve Right. That. I mean, I, I think even, well, they were Galileans. Well, they were, but, oh, but gosh, this, this situation with Well, this, we tend to assume that. You know, yeah. when misfortune befalls somebody else, it's always, oh, I feel sorry for them. But we all we almost kind of have this almost implicit, mm-hmm. you know. I wonder what they did to you right. know to deserve that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So this is interesting because these are two different parallel but different examples, different mm-hmm. kinds of examples, different different kinds of uh, Im- images come to my mind when I read them, and and so I, I I just think it's really really interesting. So we move on because. Now he puts in the parable. So the parable kind of takes away examples and really hits down to this this story, if you will, in its place. And, you know, at first glance, we might think that that parable is just kind of tacked on to the dialogue, but it really reflects a pattern in the Journey to Jerusalem section of Luke's Gospel. There are teaching discourses paired with parables, and, and, and that happens several times. In, in the journey to Jerusalem. So this part of our lesson for today does have some similarities to an episode in both Matthew and Mark, as opposed to the earlier part, which had no similarity anywhere else in the gospel tradition. Uh, both Matthew and Mark report Jesus' cursing of the barren fig tree uh, toward the end of his ministry. And you know, as much as we might be tempted to take the cursing of the barren fig tree as a prophetic action that was meant to symbolize the judgment of barren Israel, or at least the Jewish leaders' lack of fruitful repentance, in, in that context, both in Matthew and Mark, the episode of the cursing of the fig tree mm-hmm. is interpreted as a demonstration not of you know the failure of the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders, but rather of the principle that whatever you ask for in prayer with faith, you will receive. Which kind of is like a wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't seem to. It seems like a non sequitur. It just doesn't seem to mm-hmm. to, to fit. Um, but that's the way it's used in Matthew and mm-hmm. Luke and, and Mark. Now, in Luke's gospel, the parable of the barren fig tree, I think, actually has more potential resonances with the prophetic rebukes of the people of Israel for their lack of fruitfulness. Both the image of a vineyard Mm -hmm. and a fig tree are used in the Hebrew Bible by the prophets to demonstrate that God had every right to expect Israel to bear the fruit of faithfulness, but that they consistently failed to do so. But when you look at the parable in Luke's gospel, I think it's clear that Jesus really didn't have anything like that in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says simply, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? And, you know, unlike uh, the remark in Mark's version, and we want to want to make this clear because we may be hearing this in the background. In Mark's version, the cursing of the fig tree say, says that Jesus found nothing but leaves on the tree, because for it was not the season of figs. Right. Which makes you wonder, well, why does he curse the tree if it wasn't the season for figs? But here, the vineyard owner has every reason to expect the tree mm-hmm. to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, the idea that the tree was wasting soil was just a reasonable conclusion. You know, any farmer right. who makes a livelihood on the soil needs to make sure that it is producing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the gardener who urges patience. Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. 
And mm-hmm. so then I think one of the challenges of this parable is we always tend to want to sort of see parables as reflecting God in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, 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 I don't think we should view the owner of the vineyard as God, you know, mm-hmm. because that makes God out to be this kind of stir, stern and demanding judge. And then who's the gardener? Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, right, right, <laughs> because right. because then Jesus is the merciful one who says, well, what, let's what, let's give it a little more time, you know. Right. And that sets up a, a tension between God and Jesus that really isn't appropriate. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, in, instead of that, I think we should just let the parable simply stand as Mm -hmm. a reminder of the patience that God grants everyone in need of repentance out of his unfailing love and long-suffering mercy. I think that's the point. I think Jesus is reminding them here that God is merciful and God is patient beyond what anyone deserves. And so, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, um, while while we keep in mind the importance of bearing fruit, especially the fruit of repentance in Luke's gospel, um, we also, I think, we're meant to see that that um, God is merciful and patient in waiting for us to come to repentance. Right, and, right. And so that's why I think these two belong together so well, you know. Yeah we're, yeah, we're meant, I think, in Luke's gospel to read these two segments together. The warning about the urgent need for all yes. persons to repent in view of right. the presence of God's kingdom and or in view of the unexpected coming of the Son of Man. Uh, combined with a reminder of God's patience and mercy that extends to all in whom the call to repentance has mm-hmm. not yet adequately produced fruit. Right. And so right. that combination then of the call to repentance with a reminder of God's mercy is something that I think really is is the key to this passage. And we're going to see that combination of the call to repentance balanced with the mercy of God patiently cultivating Mm-hmm. Uh, in us, a response of, of, of repentance again in Luke's gospel. Yeah, yeah. I think what else I hear is also that the need to cultivate, right? Oh, the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the gardener piece, the mm-hmm. cultivating, the the digging, the trough around. So, so it's not just sit there and waiting for something to happen, but that, that we, whoever the gardener is, maybe we are, are supposed to help cultivate that mm-hmm. in people. You know, that, that this is... Not just somebody just doesn't just appear with it. I think I think on the surface of it, I wouldn't press that detail. Okay. Uh, in 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 the context of Jesus' ministry, and perhaps even in the context of Luke's gospel, um, I think we're just. I think the story simply. I think this story really does simply have one point, and that is the point that God okay. is merciful and patient beyond what we deserve. And and, okay. and God is the one. I think God is God is the one who is both demanding repentance, and God is the one who is urging is is being patient and cultivating. I think God is the one who's doing the cultivating okay. in the original parable oh, in the okay. setting of Luke's gospel. Okay. Um, but I think in terms of the application for us today, I think it's fair to say, you know, um, do do we do 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 we have a role in cultivating yeah. uh, faith and repentance? Yeah. In, in people's I think that's lives. In, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is a, as always, parables are always challenging. Um, and I think this, I think what Alan has done, at least for me, is taking that initial read from, again, that harshness that really comes with the, the with the pericope to the now the sense of, oh, this is actually a, a, a really hopeful passage. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that you all maybe hear it that way now too. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks Christy. Thank you.
Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy uh, shed some light on how the Reformers uh, uh, dealt with this passage. So uh, tell us some things, Christy. Sure. So when I was looking at the Reformation Commentary series, I was reminded um, of just the nature of the Reformation era, and I wanted to kind of share that with you because I think to understand how the Reformers looked at these passages, uh, we have to really dig into their lives. And to be a Protestant reformer really did put yourself at risk. Um, these folks did suffer. And I think sometimes we don't think about it. We think about disagreements today. But they, they're they suffering not only from their conscience. They've changed from a church tradition that has been on their minds. They have taken to sleep. I mean, I always think of Luther, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I, I cannot, I cannot repent. I cannot recant. Excuse me. Um, um, here I I stand. I can do no other. But this, and we, I I think that's often been thought of as kind of a defiant move, but, but actually when you study Luther, you realize this is a, this is this sense of, I, I have to do what scripture tells me to do, but I realize this is terrifying. I have to put my, put my trust well, in God. Well, you know, he, he had to hide out uh, exactly. for months on end, right? Exactly. And then shortly after that, they sweep him off, and he's um, um, he's held at the Wartburg Castle um, as Junker Jorg. I mean, he's in incognito mm-hmm. hiding out there um, under the protection of the... Um, the elect, elector Frederick. So anyway, absolutely. And so, and remember also, there's no division of church and state. Um, and I think that we forget that so that it, when they are going against the, the church, they're also going against the mm-hmm. state. Um, and so this is a really scary time. So it, especially when you're going back and forth between different confessions, if you will, um, you can put yourself at, at great risk. And one time you're in favor and the next time you're not. So it's a really, really volatile time. And we, um, we forget that. Maybe some of you are familiar with English history, and you might be aware of Fox's Book of Martyrs, published in 1563. And his book p- depicted the many, many people that died, um, uh, that were put to death by the Roman Catholic Church, these Protestant folks that, that you know, at one point, oh, gosh, we, we were doing the right thing. We're moving forward. We're doing as Scripture says. And then they're put to death. So um, just kind of an Well, and remind me, was it, was it Tyndall or was it Wycliffe who was put to death because of his English translation of the Bible? Yeah, Wycliffe is put to death. He's much earlier. Mm-hmm. But even then, you, you're starting to, to see this process by which um, those who are, are, are really challenging this kind of power, I'm going to call it power of the Roman Catholic Church, sure. are, are are putting themselves at risk. And many people felt, and I think Luther felt at that that day at Worms, that I'm going to die. Um, Jan Hus died. I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to burn me at the stake. Yeah, they knew of these people right. who had been who had been executed. Yeah, exactly. So, which is in part why you know um, um, Luther was ended up being protected by the by the Elector Saxony, and it's 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 a long kind of a longer piece why all that happens there's also um the elector feeling also kind of threatened by the, the church itself sure. right they're getting a, a lot of money that is flowing out of saxony to to rome and all these other pieces are in but um it is it is a time of suffering for many many people and they're very aware of it and, and now mind you this is also a time when plague is the bubonic plague keeps showing up on a regular basis, wiping out cities. Wow. It's a scary time. I mean, in fifteen 
um, I think it was 1530-ish, there was a whole nother bit of plague that came mm. out at that time. I might be a little later. And, and I think we should remember that they weren't aware that plague was, exactly. was caused by the fleas and mites on exactly. the uh, fleas and, exactly. fleas and gnats on the mice that were coming in on trade ships. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you start to think about this and you start to think in the context of what we have been reading, it's, is God punishing mm-hmm. me? Is God punishing me for a certain confession I'm following is God punishing me for not following. And so a lot of, for some sin that I've committed. Exactly. Exactly. So there's a lot of this going on. So I think, um, and as I'm reading the different reformers, I think we see an evolving understanding of suffering by the reformers. Mm. Um, why do people suffer and what does that mean? And now remember, you're looking at a Roman Catholic tradition why, where if you are suffering, it's because of something you did or didn't do, right? There's a whole sense of, of the wrath of God punishing you for your, um, your sins. Very effective means of keeping people in line. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. There's that, that medieval construct. Um, and as a, and a suffering, and a, this is an attack on people's physical being. So, um, if you are being punished by in, if in your physical life, in your temporal life, you have sinned. Hmm. Um, and no question about it, right? No question about yeah. it. So, when we dig into this parable, we realize that this first shows that suffering could be interpreted as God's wrath. We 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 see that in here, right? And um, well, and that's the way the people who approach Jesus seem to be interpreting. Exactly, it. Yeah. exactly. There's the idea that you obviously did something wrong because God is punishing you, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it takes on this idea that um, instead of looking at bad things happen to everyone or anyone, but that there's this redemption in Christ and that God has in, is indeed patient for all to repent. So that's kind of the kind of what we get it through the parable part of this. I think it's interesting, and I think that's interesting. We see this balance today, right? We, we still have people that are interpreting um, suffering with not doing something, a punishment of God. Well, and, when something bad happens to us, I think our first first impulse is to ask why, mm-hmm. and and by that we mean what have I done to deserve this? What, what have I done to deserve this? Exactly. And mm-hmm. so this, our the way our 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 reformers come at this, then um, I think starts to shift. So one of the first ones I I wanted to point out was Johannes Brandt. He's a Lutheran reformer, and he's kind of an interesting fellow because he actually is 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 in the Lutheran camp, but he ends up actually working for Echolampadius, who's in a reformed camp. So he's not mm. like a later, uh, in, we're still in this kind of pre-confessional right. period. So, um, but he says, look, he's kind of in that earlier mindset of God's wrath. So Brenz and others like him see this as a pas- passage as punishment for sin, the treatment of the Galileans or the tower scenario are only used examples for how all sin can be punished by God. Mm. And for them, these are uh, a threat to remind all to repent. And I'm sure Brent's was assuming that that applied to all those other people out there who were sinners. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and there is some acknowledgement they will have some time, as suggested by the parable, but um, this 
sense has this negative um, this negative tone that I talked about. Almost that accusatory. I, yes, yes. And so it really doesn't emphasize this kind of patience of God. It really emphasizes you're going to get punished at some point. Well, and that kind of goes back to your initial reaction to the word repent. You exactly. Know, because the way it's been used, it's 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 a, a, really an accusation. Yeah, it's an a, exactly. It's an accusation. Now, I think Calvin's approach is more positive. And I put in my notes, believe it or not, <laughs> because again, we get... I'm, I'm, begin, I'm becoming a believer, Christy. <laughs> I, well, again, Calvin gets caught up with Calvinism and it, they really push Calvin um, beyond what he said. And I think, um, I think that's a problem, although a, a problem. But anyway, for Calvin, the question is... Um, can we be among the elect if we visibly sin? So he's trying to understand this in the context of what it means to be election. Um, and um, um, I would argue yes and no in Calvin's position, just from reading mm. from Calvin, um, that there are room for errors, but that one must repent at some point. And, and I really think this leads directly to our... Um, our, our discipline portion of the Book of mm, Order, right? right? right. Um, it's, it's that there is space to make mistakes, at, but at some point you have to, you, you have to align to yourself. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and that really makes sense with, um, if, if, if indeed you are of the elect, you will, should eventually be behaving and responding in a way that reflects um, God's kingdom, sure. right? And so there's, there's, there's space for being... There's there's definitely space for being a sinner, but if 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 the behavior never change, it's it's like it's like you're not just if your behavior never changed, then obviously you probably aren't of the elect. I mean, yeah. it needs so, to be some evidence of progressive yeah. sanctification. And I think it's a problem yeah. that we deal with today all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, God will save me. I don't do anything because I'm already saved. Well, that's that's really not in line with how we we are called to be. Christian disciples, right? No, you know, right. Um, so very interesting. So in Calvin's opinion, now again, um, it's a good passion to show that yes, the, the elect do sin, and they are not only susceptible to misfortune as others, but they may be in need of repentance. Being elect does not excuse you from hardship, nor does it keep you from sin and the need of repentance. Um, and again, I think I think yes and no as you get into the, the space of the theology versus how it works out as being in the church. And of course, once you hit into that more uh, harsh version, I'm going to say of of the Reformed tradition, like in the Dutch Reformed tradition, I think that's where you get where it moves to almost being more judgment rather than. Um, so and that, that it comes back more around to that idea that that. Um, if if you experience misfortune or any anything like that, it's because you 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 are in you yeah. have sinned and you're in need of repentance. Right, 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 right. So it's kind of a kind of a the, the accusatory version. Right, of I think it kind yeah. of comes back mm. and the full. But I think that that's after Calvin. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever seen um, cases, you know, when you look at the cases of like the consistory and Geneva, or you look at you realize that Calvin himself does not come upon these decisions easily mm -hmm. um that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of caring and a lot of thought to going in to, to somebody that then was you know kicked out of the community or whatever but it does happen you know um savonarola was was executed right, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> um you know um 
so it's interesting. He notes that it is a disease that we tend to judge others and delude ourselves by our <laughs> right, own faults. Right. So this is that other side of, of Calvin I wanted to put out to you that is like, don't be so cocky that you could sit there and judge others. Um, we use, as he says, that we use this to judge others and condemn them. And he says, when we do this, we don't look at our own sins. Instead, this should stir us to examine ourselves and be thankful that God gives us time to repent. So this is that this softer is a, part of Calvin that I told you well, about. Well, and I think this this accurately accurately reflects the gist of the of the text. You mm-hmm, know that mm-hmm. that uh, these people come to Jesus thinking, "Hey, we're with you, Jesus," and and but we're not with those poor, unfortunate sinners. And he says, "No, you got to repent yeah, too. You got to too." <laughs> and I think this view of Calvin is much more sophisticated than like we just saw with Brens. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those earlier reformers. But I do think it's significant that this is being interpreted within an age that God's wrath is paramount. Mm-hmm. So I think you still have to consider Calvin as a man of his age and and in a time when there's no division of church and state, sure. right? And that's um, that's an interesting an interesting space that we have trouble putting ourselves into. Sure. So I want to move on. And talk about the part of the parable. Um, and so, uh, again, all of that kind of went together at the beginning, but there's some specific things they talk about in the parable, which I think are kind of interesting. Um, and we learn here that um, God forgives, um, but um, only for time. Um, continuing in sin is a great abuse of God's long-suffering attitude and... Um, um, that they will try by all means to make this tree fruitful. Um, and so this is really some interesting things. So there's a Puritan pastor, and I, of course I rec- I didn't know this man. This, man didn't, this is more 17th century. So it's a little later. His name's John Ferry. And as soon as I read it, I had to go look back who he was. I'm like, this is a Puritan guy. I was sure of it. And, yeah. and I think it, it, when we think of the Puritans and their impact, on our country, you can see it, but he says, look, there's only so much you can do after which you will be turned out. Um, there's probably no surprise that this is a Puritan pastor as he, as this becomes part of the tradition of the Puritan tradition of shunning people and kicking them mm. out and being accusatory. Um, um, but well, and even still, I think, I think in, in, um, American, the American religious imagination, there is this sense that you can cross a line and be beyond yeah. God's forgiveness. Yeah, God's exactly. <laughs> and I think, but what I liked about it was it reflects that freedom of a person not to follow God's direction. So what an interesting space, because we've talked about that tension a lot between pure determinism and, and um, providence. And when you look at a world of providence, there's some there's some ability to resist God's call, sure. you know, which I think is really interesting. Um, and of course that's, that's a much deeper issue to get into, but I, I did, in other words, we can hold you responsible for not, for not aligning yourself, right? right? right. <laughs> which is interesting, right? And, right? and again, no division of church and state. How do you deal with those who, won't throw them in jail (laughs) exactly what do you do i mean exactly exactly (laughs) um and then there was also some emphasis on the gardener and particularly in the reformation um 
mindset. The gardener are the pastors. The gardeners mm-hmm. are the pastors. And it was their job to nourish the tree. So this might have impacted my question earlier. Sure. Um, but the reformers tend to view the gardeners as ministers and encourage the ministers to not give up on a person. And I think this is interesting in how one measures the sin in context in the 16th century versus how we look at sin today. Um, and Martin Bootser, in particular, uses this encouragement as this, this image for the Well, you know, minister. as I said before, I, I don't know that that would be the way I would read the parable in the context of Jesus' ministry or in the context of Luke's gospel, mm-hmm. because I think there it simply stands as a statement that, you know, God is the one who is demanding repentance, but God is also the one who is, right. who is merciful and patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in terms of applying it, you know, in our day, right. I think it's an entirely legitimate application to say, you know, yeah, I mean, this is part of our role is to cultivate faith and repentance on the part of everyone. Right. Well, and, and my last point today, well, how, how Calvin looks at this and he's, he says, look, we should never be harsh in the judgment um, and, be, and, be, and be patient um, for the Lord to work in a person, um, that a person should be allowed to continue um, even if they should no, no desire to repent. So there's a lot more patience and thought with Calvin than sometimes we give him credit for because of the church that forms after his death. Sure. So, well, and that makes sense, I mean, because... You know, um, I think there is this sense uh, going along with God's sovereignty that, um, um, you know, it's not my job to convince you to repent. That's really God's work in your Mm -hmm. heart. I can do everything I can to cultivate right. that um, desire for repentance in your life. Right. But really, ultimately, that's what God does in your right. life. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. And I think that sets us up really well for our next segment. Sure. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back, and there are so many themes that we can um, work on um, on this. And I, I was thinking about um, my, uh, I have a group of, of people that work in care and, and, and are helping people, um, are helping, they work one-on-one with, with, with some of our people in need, and we're helping them think about kind of sayings in the church that have become kind of part of our vernacular. And I'm not talking about um, necessarily a single denomination, but just kind of this kind of extra, extra sacred or extra, uh, extra popular biblical. religion, I guess, is what yeah. I should say, that people um, tell themselves. And I was, the, the book we're reading through is Adam Hamilton's Half-Truths, God helps those who help themselves and other things the Bible doesn't say. Yeah, right. And so I got thinking about this because how often have I heard these, this, well, obviously I'm being punished by God for something that I did wrong. Right. Um, and what did I do and what did I do to deserve it? And so um, reminded me of that because there's this or or how many perhaps the judgment comes from somebody else what did you do that god has punished you and people begin to think of themselves and they carry their whole their whole mindset about themselves of of this sense of hopelessness because obviously god is punishing me so i kind of wanted to start with that theme yeah and you know i think 
I think there's this almost undercurrent in American popular religion that that is the image of God. You know, if I step too far out of line, I'm going to get zapped. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get punished by the wrath of God. And so if something bad happens, then that must mean I, you know, I'm being punished mm-hmm. by God. And, and, you know, even when people don't say it, it's almost like they may not say, well, what did you do that God is punishing you? It's almost like the, just the attitude with which they approach you yes. if you're going undergoing some sort of misfortune is, you know, they have a, they're assuming this. And, and sometimes it's like they're keeping their distance because mm-hmm. they're afraid that whatever it is you did, right. it might be contagious and it might rub off on them exactly. and they might get exposed exactly. to it too. <laughs> and then instead of really doing our call as disciples and reach out and care, we tend to kind of shut our door. And yeah. so these people feel isolated. We keep our distance for sure. We definitely keep our distance. And I can't believe how much it permeates even people that that go to churches that don't espouse this kind of theology. It's still, because it's kind of out there in social Mm -hmm. media, it kind of permeates their thoughts. I I think it's just, it's been so deeply ingrained in the American religious Mm -hmm. imagination that it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, just is not easily uprooted. Well, and I think a lot of our... um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of our um, groups that are maybe in the evangelical world, I, I, I'm thinking a lot of the collegiate groups and things, mm-hmm. they actually practice this kind of judgment-shunning mm-hmm. thing. Well, you, you know, you're doing that. Well, then obviously you don't belong in a group instead of kind of a welcome and kind of a, um, a we're forgiveness. All, we're all pilgrims on the journey. Exactly. There's yeah. a huge judgment. And I talked with a young man about this for some at some time who had visited several different groups. And he said that was absolutely the tone. And it became mm. this very judgmental kind of thing. And I, I know of a, you know, I know of a church in town that part of it is this kind of, um, of tell me your, all you your sins. Publicly, pu- publicly confess your sins. Confess your yeah. sins um, with this idea then that that the church can will forgive you for it and it kind of makes a I sinned and they don't sin kind of yep. kind of sense and of course it continues to happen right so it's this kind of it, it well, doesn't it's, it's that accusatory tone that mm-hmm. you know you you were talking about that you heard initially when you read the passage and the, and, the, yeah. and associated with the language of repent mm-hmm. because you know um, I, I think. What we associate with the word repent is repent, you sinners. Yes, right, right, right. That's, that's right, the whole phrase right. that's in our American religious imagination is repent, you sinners. Right. And, um, you know, it, I think sometimes it may even be written into our hymnody. And, yeah. and so, um, and yet that is not, and, and you know, okay, let's, let's be clear about this. You know, in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Bible, there is this sense in which God um, holds people accountable for their actions. And, and the word we use for that is judgment. Mm-hmm. And we tend to associate judgment with punishment mm-hmm. and wrath. And we tend to think of it as, in terms of human wrath, as anger. And yet, from a theological standpoint, you know, Wrath, as opposed to love, makes God into a schizophrenic God. Right. And, and That's we, a good point. Yeah. We, you know, we, 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 and so we interpret God's wrath through God's love. Mm-hmm. That it's like a parent who is, who is upset with a child who's done something that put themselves perhaps at harm, not because 
they're angry with the child or because they're they're wanting to punish the child, but because they love the child and they want what's best for the child. Right. And that's the that's the framework for judgment. I've said it many times, you know, in my mind, at least from a from an overarching perspective, the role of judgment in the Bible is almost almost always intended to bring right. people back into exactly. relationship with God. It's yes, not yes, intended yes. as punishment, as I'm going to inflict this harm upon you uh, as punishment for what you've done. It's more of a sense of this is judgment that is intended to help right. you re- come to yourself as the prodigal right. son does right. and realize that you that how far you've gone astray and, and return to the right. relationship with God. When I keep thinking of... I keep thinking of my new mental framework of realignment uh, that yeah. I'm really liking. And and I know some folks don't like the word sinner either, that for them that's mm-hmm. really tough. And sometimes when we'll do our confession, I will I will not use sin. Mm-hmm. I will be like what's heavy on your hearts or what's pulling sure. your your mind away from from joy that is God, that kind of thing. So, you know, I was I was thinking about this whole thing. If if you can rely realign your thoughts and using my new my new word um that that being with god and 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 being called to be a disciple and and living in that joy how much fuller life is than those times when we are we're just overcome with 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 regret and with doubt and with self-hatred and all those things that that come with sin and i think that's that's where this really becomes this amazing. Well, I, it's a part of that. It's a part of that notion of God as this angry, wrathful God. You know, mm-hmm. um, that 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 all that heaviness and all that negative thinking about ourselves. Yeah. Right, right. So it's kind of it's kind of exciting to 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 get rid of this God that judges this way and and even this 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 way of thinking. But uh, and. Um, I mean, I think we do that in our churches. It's just that this loud kind of popular religion just keeps yelling at us. And you know, when you when you go look at the old medieval imagery, of course, we see this. We've talked about this a lot in here. This 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 judgment, um, God of judgment, and so it's it's ingrained into our history mm-hmm. of the church. Um, which I would argue is a complete misunderstanding yeah, of the scriptural surely, tradition, surely. Um, which, you know, that's exactly what Luther, you know, and, and remind you again, Luther's symbol is this heart with a cross mm. in it, that God is love. And um, this reminder, this, this is the true church. This is, this is how we understand God as God of love. Um, well, and I think, I think it also has to do with how we frame salvation. Because we frame salvation in terms of people are sinners, and that means they're going to hell. Jesus died on the cross so that if you turn from your sin and trust in Mm -hmm. Jesus, then you don't have to go to hell, but rather you can live in eternity in heaven with God. And and that framing of 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 salvation in those terms also sets up that whole That's dichotomy true. of a of a god who punishes some and blesses others right. uh, when you when you think about it in terms of the kingdom of god you know and again mm-hmm. i was reminded again this week i was i was reading a devotional and i was reminded again this week I am not going to relinquish the the language of the kingdom of God. Right. Yes, the kingdom creates a kingdom, but there is so much more going on mm-hmm. here. The kingdom of God is connected with the reign of God in the Bible. Yep. yep. 
the kingdom of God is meant to subvert all human pretensions to power yep. because the king of kings is the one who is crucified on the cross, right? right. Um, and the kingdom of God, the goal of the kingdom of God is not only creating of a, a human family, but it is the transformation of all creation, the natural world, as well as the whole cosmos, mm-hmm. you know, it, so that it all reflects um, um, the, the, the mercy and and true justice of mm-hmm. God's ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about mercy and justice and peace and freedom. And, and mm-hmm. you know, justice not in the sense of crime and punishment, but justice in the sense of, of righting the wrongs. Right, right. And, and releasing the oppressors, mm-hmm. uh, releasing the oppressed and the oppressors, really. Right, right. So, you know, I think if we can reframe our understanding of what God is doing in this world in terms of, of promoting God's kingdom, um, um, then that helps us to, to get out of that space of this sort of schizophrenic God who, he, you know, he's mm-hmm. going gonna to almost, uh, in an unfeeling way, you know, just condemn some right. people to eternity right. in right. hell but while he's going to bless others. Right. Uh, no, that's not the image at all. The image of God is is one of God who is who is, he's 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 a merciful God who reigns over all. His reign demands a change of our lives mm-hmm. to align ourselves with um, God's ways and God's purposes in this world. To align ourselves with God's mercy and God's justice in this world, and um, um, but it, it is nevertheless it is a merciful. Uh, uh, endeavor that God is about. He's about. Uh, it's about transforming right. this world by mercy. Right, right. And it's when I when I hear that, I hear of, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I hear of this promise, and I, I also hear of the promise for all people. Right. Yeah. And I think you know we've talked about this idea of the elect that that Calvin comes up, and and when we talk about. predestination and double predestination it brings these negative connotations but i really think that the idea of election coming out was a very initially a one of supposed to be of comfort you can trust that you are saved um if you are having this question mark about it uh then you are on the right path right there yeah absolutely and and if you're concerned about it at all right and as calvin said i I would love to calvin loved the idea of universal salvation i just don't think he he, he he couldn't say everyone is saved. You can't go that, he couldn't go that far, but he said, I would love it if everyone were saved. And I think what you get with this kingdom of God is this promise of everyone um, or this hope of everybody being able to yes. be a participant in it. Everyone being restored. Everybody being restored. And um, there's that hope that can happen. Um, but I think many of us, you know, when, when we do work with people, especially as ministers, we see people that, um, that are so damaged that they, they don't live in the joy of God. They don't, their, their faith is broken and, um, you know, they need that nurturing. Like we might, we might see in the, we talked about a practical, maybe response to this passage, um, to, to see hope in God's kingdom. And, um, I keep thinking of those who, who, who are walking in, in very bitter atheism and, and separated from God and unable to live into the joy of creation. And um, um, then I then I then I think about this God that's patient. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I, I've told you this story. Um, 
uh, I thought I would share share it with the with the audience. Um, over 20 years ago, I went through a divorce, and um, we had three kids. My oldest son was 11, was 13. Um, my middle son was 11, and my youngest daughter was six. And um, it was really a heart wrenching experience for me because I was very much an involved dad. You know, I would bathe the kids, I would sing them to sleep at night, I would take them to their, you know, their their game, their sports practices. I was I was an assistant scout master for my son's troop. You know, I was involved in Cub Scouts, and I I I, I te- taught the I taught the missions class that that we had for that age for my son as well, you know, and so I was just very involved in their lives, and and to be a non-custodial dad was a very painful experience for me, um, and one of the ways that I will say, I think it actually worked out to, to be a benefit to my relationship with my kids, because I had to step back and realize that, you know, I, I didn't have as much direct influence over their lives as perhaps I wanted, but the thing that helped me deal with that was the realization, look, they have a father who loves them far more than I, you know, could ever love them. Mm -hmm. They have a father who is a better father than I could ever be to them. And so to entrust them into the care, into God's care like that helped me um, to, I think, have a more healthy relationship with my children out of that whole experience. And, you know, I've kind of applied that to people in general. Mm-hmm. You know, that, right. that I have this, instead of having this almost, we have almost this suspicion or this skepticism of the world. You know, they're mm-hmm. the enemy. They're the, mm-hmm. they're the others. They're the outsiders. They're, they're the ones who are rejected, you know, and they're, they're the ones who are condemned. I, I have this more of this sense of, you know, God is this uh, loving father, mother figure who loves all these people far more than I could ever. Mm-hmm. Jesus died on the cross for all these people, mm-hmm. and and so you know that doesn't that doesn't mean that I don't have a role in trying to be a witness to that love and mercy in their lives mm-hmm. and the and the possibility of freedom uh, through their their faith in Jesus Christ. But what it means is that I don't have to take this attitude of well, if you don't come over to my side, then you're against me. You know, right, if you're not right, with right. me, then you're against me. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, Jesus said it opposite. Those who are not against us are with us. And, right. You know, I, I don't think that people who, I, I, I really, even, even someone who's an atheist, I don't necessarily think that they are against uh, God. I think they're. I, th- I think a lot of atheists are atheists because of what the church has done to them or their families. Right. Right. Well, I think there's a desperate search often with it, yeah. with 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 yeah. that proclamation. I, I think. I think in my description, it's it's more about those though that um, are out searching and they they keep. It's like they're they're so they're they're resisting so hard that they aren't able to live into sure. joy. They aren't sure. able to live into sure. peace. And. Uh, I, I, it affects all of us because we're all, you know, we're all sinners. So we're all in that space. We're all on a journey. We're all on that journey. But I think, you know, um, that living into that faith brings us, brings us back. Of course. Brings us back of course to, it does. 
Um, and, and the practices of the church, they, they keep us, they keep us steeped in God's presence where when you step away and you quit doing those things, I just think it, you get it more and more alienated. You miss the joy of living exactly. life the way in line with God's ways exactly. and purposes of the way we exactly. were intended to live. You know, I think that, I think that's another aspect of the way we frame salvation that really kind of, kind of cripples us or sabotages our view of God is that we, we, we have this notion that you have to choose for Christ before you die. And if you don't, then you're condemned. And I want to, you know, as a, as a, as a lifelong student of the Bible, I want to say, where does it say that in the Bible? It says who? You know? Right. And of course, that's again, part of this kind of evangelical popular religion yeah. that's out there right now. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that, um, I think that causes a lot of problems. It actually. does. I mean, it's kind of an arbitrary, arbitrary of, line, you know. Instead of God and God's children, and 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 this idea of sanctification as part of our tradition, which I think is so, you know, God continuing to help us grow and working in our lives throughout it, I think is a much better um, image for how God sure. works in our life than this. Today I today I follow Jesus. Well, what happens when you do something wrong? Do you have the space for that? Do you have the, what happens if you walk away? Do you have to do it again? What happens if someone goes through something so devastating that it shatters their faith and they never come back to church? Exactly, exactly. Does that mean they're they're forfeited anything? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. To me, the final act in in, in, in this journey of salvation is when we come face to face with God and, and face to face with a God who is pure, unconditional love and mercy. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I think that's going to be a transformative experience. I think it's going to purge all of us of whatever in our lives mm-hmm. re- remains that is contrary to God's mercy and love mm-hmm. and justice. But I think it's also going to just, it's, it's, I, can't, I can't imagine, I personally can't imagine anyone standing in the presence of that much unconditional love and, and refusing to allow yourself to be drawn into it. Oh, no, I don't think you can. It's hard, It's I, hard. you know, just from the standpoint of the fact that the Bible speaks of some who are wicked and who reject right. God finally, right, right, I, I right. leave it open that there may be well, some who that, will yeah, do that. I think you have right? to leave it open. I, I do leave think you have to leave open, it open. But, but I can't imagine even the most hardened person not being willing to be drawn in to such overwhelming, unconditional love. And so to me, that's the final act, is when we're face-to-face with God. It's not a matter of whether or not you make, make your choice before you die. It's a matter of how, how, do you, how do you respond to being in the presence of this just pure, unconditional love face-to-face with God. You know, I'm going to put in one interesting thing. I, I read a, 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 a biography of um, Stalin by his daughter, and I guess... Uh, um, Svetlana Alleluvia, and she she was explaining that when Stalin died, he died very angry, and he died in this like belligerent with his arm in the air, and he was just, you know, it wasn't peaceful, <laughs> and you know, it's always a wonder someone like Stalin, yeah, 
what happened at the very end. <laughs> Who knows? We don't know. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's in God's hands, exactly. right? And, exactly. And, and, and God is the one who is, who is gracious and compassionate, you know, faithful and merciful, you know, um, and, and, you know, what happens in the end, we can't say. But, you know, to me, the final act in, in, in the drama of salvation is when we're face-to-face with God's unconditional love that yeah. is has always been seeking to draw us into that love. That's that's been the purpose of God from the beginning right, is to exactly. draw us into exactly. that loving relationship. Exactly. And so I, I can't imagine that it will be anything other than that at the end. I can't either. Well thank you, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.